Hi everybody, go check out my friends at Sonic Science CBD. They're a full spectrum hemp-based CBD manufacturer out of Renton, Washington that produce phytocannabinoid rich products using the entire hemp plant using pharmaceutical based CO2 extraction techniques. CBD, for those of you who don't know, is a non-intoxicating remedy for chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia, and other inflammatory conditions. Sonic Science makes tinctures, topicals, flower products, and even pre-workout, which is my personal favorite. Go check out their Facebook group, Sonic Science CBD, to learn more. Also, check out episode 8 of the Roscoe's Wetsuit podcast, in which I interview Sonic Science CBD CEO and founder Tim McDougal. All right, welcome to another episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am here today with my good friend Sam Tolman. Uh, Sam, how's it going? Hey, man, it's going great. It's uh, it's really fun to be on here with you. Super excited about this uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit uh, endeavor that you're diving into, and yeah. I'm happy we get to talk. It's a nice excuse to talk. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, too long. But yeah, Sam is a, is a really interesting guy. Um, we, we met um, about probably a year and a half ago now, was it? Um, basically uh, at a company that we both used to work at and ended up being roommates and friends mm-hmm. and coworkers, a lot of different things. But yeah. Some of those you did better than others. So yeah, yeah, differing levels of success, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. But Sam's a super interesting guy. He he has a, a kind of a wide array of interests. Um, as far as he did uh, in in school, he graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a bachelor's of arts in neurobiology and neurosciences. Also playing college football at the same time. Uh, he was a research assistant um, at the uh, Northwestern University Department of Psychology, uh, undergraduate research assistant at the Center of Sleep, and he has been uh, the lead QEEG technician at the PTSD Institute in Seattle now, uh, doing some really cool research on, I believe, uh, prisoners on death row. Is that correct? Yeah, largely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, that should be really interesting. Uh, we'll definitely get into that on the podcast yeah. today. But I want to start off just by kind of asking, you know, how how did you get into this whole, you know, uh, neuroscience thing? I know we've talked, you know, somewhat about it, Ooh. but as far as like, you know, when when it came to college and you decided, you know, okay, I'm going to study neuroscience. You know, was it a was it a clear like, okay, I'm going to do this, or was it more like figuring out what you were interested in and then kind of falling into it or how did that yeah, work? Yeah. Super good question. Uh, it actually, it comes at a good time because I have been doing a lot of writing for, uh, an application for a Fulbright scholarship, uh, which I'm uh, kind of done now and waiting to hear back from, uh, so fingers crossed, but, um, but I kind of have been discussing just this. So yeah, coming out of high school, I had an interest in human behavior, I think is probably the biggest thing. And I had really excelled in high school in uh, the natural sciences, Um, you know, taking various APs, blah, 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 all the nice high school accolades. 
Um, and I was, I, you know, I had considered neuroscience. I thought that would be cool. I had been uh, a little bit frustrated by psychology. And I say this kind of, and, and it's interesting to hear myself say this because in a way I've come back full circle on it. But uh, at the time I was like, man, what are all these theories that people have that are like just based on like watching their kids? Like, that's crazy. Are you kidding me? Like, we can't think of anything more scientific. Um, so, you know, I had this mind for neuroscience. Um, and then I think it was when I took the kind of intro course that Penn has into their neuroscience program, um, which is bio biological basis of behavior. And it was the first experience I had ever had of being like really, really challenged by a class. And I had been challenged by classes before, but not to the extent that I was like, uh, and this sounds, you know, ridiculous and uh, you know, very like school and academic, but like not to the extent that I wasn't going to get an A basically. And here I was like working my butt off and I probably was not going to get an A and I didn't. And I just remember being like so challenged and so fascinated by it. Um, and that was kind of when I knew. I would say, to say a little bit about myself, um, the interesting behavior came from a variety, came from a family background where I saw kind of a lot of erratic behavior, um, which, you know, for the sake of my family, I won't go too much into here, but, you know, I had some, some crazy times growing up in my household. Um, and then also being diagnosed with type one diabetes and recognizing the like change in my own behavior that was occurring with changes in blood sugar. Um, so it really, you know, and there's many other influences, but I'd say those two things kind of made me aware of like, Oh, what's going on? Like, why are people so crazy, including myself? You know, why, why are we all acting so crazy, so irrational? Uh, and I wanted to understand it more. So I'd say that's kind of how I went into that rabbit hole where I find right. myself now. So it was like partially uh, kind of like a personal uh, interest as far as like trying to figure out, you know, what's going on, you know, with me, what, you know, what's going on with, you know, how I'm kind of creating my world and, and what's going on with all these weirdos out here. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I kind of like, you know, we probably talked and, and I've followed a, a somewhat similar path, but I, I'm with you there as far as at times getting disillusioned with psychology in terms of it, you know, when it's focused more so on the theories of, of trying to, you know, rationalize why all this stuff happens. And I kind of gravitated towards more like, okay, well, maybe this is true. Maybe it isn't, but it's like, here are the biochem, you know, here's the chemicals and electrical, you know, patterns that the brain is, you know, and these chemical and electrical messengers that the brains, uh, the brain is using. It's like here we can actually quantify that. Right. Right. And yeah. well, it feels like there's certainty in that. And I guess that's yeah, why I say yeah, that yeah. I've come back full circle. Um, because there is some level of knowledge or knowing in that, which is great. And it's important and has the potential to do a lot of good. And we're really, honestly, we're in the early stages of it just starting to do good. Uh, and a lot of that technology where we can see some of these things has been around for a while. And we're kind of, even now, just figuring out how it's useful. Uh, like mental mental health care is super, super behind in how it takes care of people and how it looks at illness. Um, so that's, you know, we can get into that later. That's, that's a big passion of mine, but all that to say, 
that it feels like there's that level of certainty when you're like, oh, I know what molecule is being released. Right. But it's like, you don't really know that much more because you could have said before, okay, we're going to say X molecule. And now you have a name for it and you know it's connected to maybe some other process. But I think the risk that both you and I saw at the place that we were coworkers together is that there can sometimes be a false sense of certainty or false sense of security in that quote unquote knowing. It's like, okay, great. You know like 10% of what's going on now, but don't act like you know 100% because that's dangerous and irresponsible. Right. And I think and that, that also happens. Yeah, that's. I feel like that's a big problem with like integrating this stuff into a business where it's like, as a marketer, you don't want to be, you don't want to convey that you're 10% yeah. sure about a product. Like that's the problem yeah. I see is like, right. you want to be, you want to be, yeah, be able to like speak about something with a hundred percent confidence in, in business. But it's like, realistically speaking, we can't be a hundred percent confident about this yeah. stuff when it, you know, pertains to the brain. And there's definitely, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I guess trying to be as honest with people as possible, I think, you know, people de definitely respect that. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. There, there is so much we still don't know as far as, you know, the brain and, and all of these things. It's like you keep, you know, at the surface level, maybe they're somewhat complex. But if you try to actually go um, and, and really understand all these mechanisms, it, it seems like it just gets more and more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, and I appreciate that you brought up the business thing. Um, I think there's there's two things there. One thing that we they both kind of have experienced from having some interaction or background with biohacking is uh, the idea of like do what works, which I think there is definitely some wisdom in. Um, and again, it's risky. Like you have to start thinking about okay, and what does that mean if it works and is it repeatable and does it work for other people and what's happening at the tail end. So there's all of that, which is connected to the business. And then there's all of the, like, how do you get some of these applications to people in a simple way that makes sense? Because like you were saying, it's not that simple. Like I recently uh, read a slide deck on behalf of uh, a venture capital firm for a company that's kind of doing some work relating to uh, it's, it's, it's in line with neurofeedback, I would say, uh, but it's using uh, kind of, it's responsive to EEG. Uh, it's responsive, responsive to the kind of brain activity, uh, the electrical activity in someone's brain um, to help induce sleep states, which is great. And it's like, man, like this could have been out way sooner as you or I both know, it doesn't take much time of putting somebody in like slow wave neurofeedback to put them right to sleep, you know? Um, that's a pretty quick process. Uh, but also there's, there's complications of like bringing that to a mass market. So yeah, it's always things to be careful with. And I think for me, from the business perspective, the, what makes the biggest difference, because there's all sorts of actions that can be taken, but what will make the biggest difference is where the intention is. And that might not come through in one single action or another single action. Uh, but overall, it comes through in the direction that a company is going. So, like, if, uh, you know, if this company has the intention to make a lot of money, 
They're going to say, yeah, yeah, just slap that thing on your forehead. You'll be like sleeping great in no time. Don't worry about anything. Um, and if it doesn't work, it's your fault. Or if you start feeling weird things, we don't know anything about it. Whereas if the priority is like, let's help people and we're helping people by this product, then sure, we might still put it out there and say, yeah, slap that thing on your forehead. Uh, but there might be a little different kind of tone to it. And there might be a little different level of care and follow-up, uh, which I think is the most important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think, honestly, I, I personally trust products and, and people who are creating these products more so who, who have the background in neuroscience first, you know, before they jump into business. If it's business people who are interested in neuroscience, I think there can be a lot of you know, complications, not to say that there can't be the other way around, but well, you know, as far as, as far as when it comes to, you know, kind of you alluded to neurofeedback, which is one of the ways that we can kind of, you know, alter or, or kind of basically teach people how to regulate their own brain activity um, in these different electrical frequencies. What, what have you seen as far as, you know, there's some people will, you know, try to use the excuse, oh, you know, this stuff is, you know, there's no research, on, you know, but which isn't true. We know there is research. There may not be enough um, like peer reviewed, you know, perfect research that that is able to be done with, say, you know, pharmaceutical drugs because of, you know, lack of funding. But sure. as far as, you know, you're you've been trained in, in how to read the research and and you know, with, with your studies and, you know, so what do you, what do you see as far as, you know, the different technologies, the different kind of transcranial stimulation and neurofeedback and these things for different ailments? What, what do you see right now as far as what do we know that, that there's a decent possibility that actually works? Yeah. Okay. This is great. It's a big question actually. Um, so I would say, I think you mentioned already, there's, uh, first of all, there is research for, related to neurofeedback that actually this can work and it can work quite well in, in very specific circumstances. Um, and then even outside of some of that research, there's still documented, not academic, but documented success in a lot of different areas. Um, always something to be cautious with when it's, when it's not kind of having to be published and reviewed by a lot of people. But still, as you and I saw, people can do quite interesting things with that technology. Uh, and it seems to be quite useful. Um, and I think, I think the medical field is starting to catch on and open up to it a little more. And I think that's starting with just using EEG. So it's starting with just using it as a diagnostic more and more, which is happening. Uh, and then perhaps that will develop into a little more acceptance of neurofeedback. Because at the end of the day, and this is kind of where my passion lies, uh, and this relates back to that kind of biohacking-esque creed, which is really much older than biohacking. Uh, that may be the last time I mentioned biohacking unless you <laughs> say something about it for my own sake. Um, but, which is that activity changing in the brain and you know you're doing one or two things, well, if you're working with a patient from a clinician's perspective, it's like, let's keep doing that, um, especially when they're low risk. Now, we're actually much earlier on in some of the stimulation, which is not to say it's bad. And the military especially has done some very, very interesting 
studies, especially on transcranial AC and DC. Uh, and I myself have played with this technology. Again, it can be very interesting. It can induce some very uh, powerful changes, normally short term in the brain. And I'll talk about that in a minute as well. But I think something to be careful with. Something to be careful with as always, because you don't really know what's going on in the back end. Um, all of this stuff in the scheme of history is quite new. So you see me wearing my robes, and I know at some point you will probably ask about uh, the, of where I'm going next and um, where I'm living right now. But there are certain practices that people have been doing for hundreds or thousands of years. And you can kind of see how or in what ways it's worked out. And you can also see the pitfalls. You can see where it hasn't quite worked out. Um, but that's good data. Whereas the more and more recent you get, it's like, wow, okay, that, that has some really powerful effects. That's very cool. Um, how do we use it cautiously? Or how do we start to integrate it? Or how do we investigate it? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, the biggest thing is is making sure that you're putting it in the right hands because this is definitely like super powerful technology. And I've said, uh, you know, on the podcast before, it's like, I feel like it's like any tool, you know, it's like a, like with a hammer or something, you know, you could use it to either build a house or knock yourself out. You know, you could hit yourself yeah. in the head with it. like, it's just a tool. So it's like, or even easier to knock somebody else out or to not yeah. in the case of both the technology and the hammer. Right. There you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's something that we know, I mean, with neurofeedback, it, you know, you can definitely take someone, uh, you, you can make it their brain worse, you know, if you don't know what you're yeah. doing with, with that sort of tool. And I think even more so with the, with the stimulation potentially, just because, you know, I mean, it, it is more so actually, uh, you know, giving an external kind of output or input rather to the brain rather than the neurofeedback is kind of just uh, telling the brain what's going on. Whereas with the stimulation, you're actually feeding electrical current. But yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's cool to be on this forefront. And I think maybe me and you both have that kind of in common that we're, we're very curious about these sort mm -hmm. of uh, tools and it's, it's kind of irresistible not to, not to like play around. Yeah. With them, right. Yeah. Well, and to figure out how they can be used effectively. Um, and I think like one of the things that that, uh, that we can touch on in that note is like what effective look like looks like and what you're trying to get out of it. Um, because in almost any circumstance, I think we're still always uh, looking for shortcuts. And I think people in the field not to be named uh, are often looking for shortcuts. Uh, and it's good. It's good to find the most efficient way. Don't get me wrong. Like it's very good to find the most efficient path. Um, and shortcuts are shortcuts for a reason. And there's often important things that are missed. Um, so when it comes to synaptic plasticity, there really are very few shortcuts. Uh, there's there's some ways that you can create more of an impact on what your brain is taking in for sure. But at the end of the day, synaptic plasticity requires repeated exposure, um, unless it's something particularly traumatic, uh, God forbid. But 
Otherwise, if we're talking about training or changing the brain or changing the body, uh, really in any circumstance, any type of plasticity, it requires repeated action. And I think um, then you start to ask, okay, well, sure, I know what this does when when I, you know, hook up kind of negative to this side of my head and like positive on this shoulder. I know what happens once. It's quite cool. I get into really deep meditation. Um, but what happens when I do it a hundred times? You know, will I will I start having difficulty like making plans with my friends? Mm-hmm. Um, so, what can be practiced? What can be practiced? And for what can't be practiced, what can be actually taken from what we like learn and develop during that time as something that's useful for regular life? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's something I think you you maybe touched on a little bit as far as, you know, with with something like the, the stimulation and it being, you know, you know, potentially uh, some people think of it as, uh, as a shortcut. And there's definitely the perception. I mean, we both have probably, uh, you know, experienced that from either patients or clients where, you know, there's the perception that this is kind of like the holy grail that we have this this kind of like yeah. secret technology that you know, and not to say that it's not powerful and that it can't really dramatically improve people's lives, but at the same time, I kind of view it as like it's it's kind of, I mean, going back to like kind of a, a tool in the tool belt where, where, you know, stuff like exercise or meditation, you know, uh, you know, eating, uh, eating a healthy diet, you know, all these things are super basic, but, you know, very well researched and we probably have better research just on getting good quality sleep you know that yeah i think that's one oh, of the, man, like, I was most talk profound about that yeah I said. well you yeah you worked you were working right in a in a sleep lab so yeah um but you know i'm i'm curious you know you had alluded to you know some of these older practices that kind of we may know some more about and we've followed people who've done them and i know you personally are are you know, a practitioner of, of meditation and, and Zen. Uh, and I'm curious as far as, you know, kind of you, you've definitely, you've definitely dug deeper than I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people out there, I feel like, you know, they've tried to meditate at this point, you know, meditation is such a popular topic nowadays where people have tried to meditate, you know, their mind probably races, they probably have a hard time doing it, but you're someone who's actually, crazy enough to to do these multi-day retreats and actually crazy is required crazy is uh and actually sit in silence and uh on on hard floor and you're with your knees given out right like and from what you told me about it uh it sounds like very intense experiences yeah yeah it is um yeah i can say a little bit about that i don't know what was the giveaway that i uh that I was doing intense meditation. It wasn't uh, the costume that I'm wearing. <laughs> um, no. Uh, hmm, what to say about that? Well, uh, perhaps the way that I got into that, um, which this wasn't necessarily like the intention from the beginning. Although, you know, when I was young, I had kind of, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was trying to meditate and I practiced Shotokan karate and I was very fortunate that uh, my sensei growing up actually did have us do a little bit of meditation, but it didn't become part of my life or anything. Uh, it was like, you know, a minute or two of meditation at the beginning and at the end of class. 
um, and I didn't have a kind of framework to put it in. Um, and then kind of got lost and carried away into all these other things in life, um, became good at football, and that kind of took over my life, and that was very good to me. And then it wasn't until I was in college and I was really dealing with the fact that I, first of all, thought I wasn't good enough and on some level was not good enough um, to really play and, and play well and play a lot at the Division One level. Um, and at a certain point reached a breaking point and was very fortunate to find a mentor who basically helped me rework uh, a number of my life habits. And this is a shout out to Ni Shobomain. Um, maybe, I don't know how this will work, but I can always send you a link to his info. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can put his it organization in is the show I'm description. Not yeah, his organization is I'm Not You, so we can put that. Um, but I was very fortunate to encounter him at this very ripe moment. Uh, and he basically, and it wasn't just him, I was already beginning to make some pretty major life changes, including with my diet. But um, he was like, look, like if there's nothing else you do, like you have to start meditating. Um, and it was just on an app at that time. I was on Headspace for a while and Headspace was amazing. It was perfect for me. Um, and I kind of made it part of my morning routine. And the only reason I did it was because I was like, like I'm going to be good for you know, like I'm going to like no other, uh, or I thought I was meditating like no other. Um, and that I was so kind of focused and in on it, uh, because to me it meant success in football for so long. And, and that was kind of my entry, my real entry or my re-entry, I would say. Um, and when football was over, that led me down this very interesting path of realizing actually like this seems to be the more important thing here. Actually, like, I'm really glad that football led me to this. And this is what I'm actually more curious about exploring. Um, I went to India for a few months after graduating, stayed in some ashrams there, uh, was traveling a little bit. Uh, and I also, this whole time during college, I also was studying um, like South Asian culture and studies, uh, which has its own background. But um, basically when I got back, I was kind of consulting with a really good friend of mine who's like a sister to me. And she pointed out to me, she was like, Hey, you know, that meditation thing that you're doing. And she was a, she was a meditator. So it wasn't like she was somebody disparaging it, but she was like, that's really just like another proxy for being a perfectionist for your perfectionist habit, not in general, but for the perfectionist habit that you have. And I was like, as soon as she said it, I knew instantly, like it was completely true. Like it had nothing to do with anything else. It was just about me being kind of this perfect image of a person or something. Um, so I stopped meditating for uh, a few months. And, you know, We're back. Hey, are we back? Yeah. Sorry about that. You're good. Um. So, uh, where where did you where did you lose me at? Yeah, you were describing your friend. 
Yeah. She basically was like, you know, saying that this was a proxy for my perfectionism. So I stopped meditating. And it wasn't until I reached kind of another turning point in my life uh, with a relationship ending and kind of ending for for good for good uh it kind of been a back and forth period and at that very moment again a very right moment something showed up for me and that was um basically i was staying with some family friends and they're like oh you work at a place called you know uh 40 years of zen uh and oh zen like our daughter-in-law she works or she goes and meditates at a zen center and I was like this close to being like, oh, no, 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 that's not really it. That's not what it's about. And then I was like, you know what? Just go. Like this conversation happened in my mind. So I went with her. Um, and I uh, we got up kind of 5 a.m. one morning and we came to the temple. And it's a Zen temple and practice center. And uh, as soon as I walked in and sat down, I was like, this is it. This is it. Like, this is where I need to be. Um, And then that only, it it was something about the smell of the incense and the Japanese culture, which I had kind of immersed myself in before. Um, The way that everything was done very, everything was very kind of exacting. And that was familiar to me from probably my athletic career among other things. And I only really fell more in love with it as time went on, as I started learning more about the teachings in this specific tradition, Rinzai Zen. Um, And, um, you know, like my teacher would be giving talks and all of a sudden I would be like, wait, what? Like, that's what I've been thinking this whole time. You know, not to say that I'm some like enlightened being or buddha or something but also we all are Uh, and to have somebody speak something out out loud that instantly resonated with some very very deep realizations that i had had in my life thus far was extraordinarily validating that i was in the right place and then i really really appreciated um the efforts that this specific community was making to be of service to the larger community uh, and to be mindful of how it was interacting with people of all sorts of different identities uh, and to be inclusive and to provide for different parts of the community in ways that it could. So that all kind of uh, led me to this moment. And, and then all of that happened, and I would say more fuel for the fire. There were two things. Um, the first thing was just all of the reading and research that I had done on meditators at this point. And I had already been meditating at this point. So it's not really what got me in, but it was like a little extra fuel for the fire of, of seeing like, first of all, it does make a big change in your brain. Seems pretty darn clear now. Uh, there's some pronounced changes that occur over long periods of meditation. Um, so that was very inspiring. And second of all, that one of the most important things about that, uh, which also this tradition, both science and this tradition kind of hold this to be very important, are these kind of intensive experiences or retreat experiences. Um, That those are kind of 
where some of the biggest changes can occur in the brain, um, which is consistent with this tradition, holding people, traditionally holding people to do four retreats a year. Although, you know, in our culture nowadays, you know, people often do less and people do as much as they can. But um, that kind of that kind of dropped me into this. That dropped me into this world of of pain and discomfort, um, and all sorts of madness. Yeah, and it, you know what's interesting? It's I mean, I had previously, you know, definitely read a, a fair amount of meditation. I hadn't like, you know, dove super deep on the subject. But one of the things that you kind of enlightened me to was what you were kind of mentioning about. There's actually a lot better research on this on you know kind of these longer term retreats um, as compared to say meditating for 20 minutes every single day that was something that when you first said that i was i was really surprised by but then after going to research it seems to be true yeah and there's research on both there's there's kind of three different categories of research the first is the categories of people that have been taught in more the first way that you were talking about of like okay do your 20 minutes of practice a day for a few weeks and remarkably even over the period of a few weeks you can see changes in the brain Um, and that's really cool now it's another question to say would those stick then if you stop the practice likely not Um, but still pretty remarkable to see that as opposed to controls you do see a lot of these changes that are then correlated with behaviors of better attention, better emotional regulation, among many other things. So that's kind of the first category. Second category is what you were talking about, um, which is like retreat experience. Uh, And that seems to have a huge impact, uh, especially in the way that the emotional system is connecting to the somatosensory system. Because as you mentioned, things get pretty uncomfortable and painful. all sorts of things about how the default mode network, which is kind of the central network of the brain that you could think of as deciding kind of our base functioning, who we are or how we behave at a base level, our kind of standard quote unquote self. And it's a little more complicated than that, but that's one way of thinking about it. Um, So changes in that. And then there's the third kind of category that you can make, Uh, There's all sorts of ways to categorize the research, but third category would be lifetime meditators. Uh, And that's where you see the most pronounced change and the most stunning, like, wow. Uh, And, you know, to make another comment about this, actually, another big moment uh, of inspiration for me was, you know, I was early in the practice, and you know about this. I I can't remember if this was before or after you had come on. I think it was before. Um, Where my my Zen teacher, um, Genjo Roshi, actually agreed to uh, have some recordings done of his electrical activity of his brain while he was kind of doing different... uh, while well, he was going into different kind of mental states, you could think of them as. We'd call them different forms of samadhi. And even at a base level, not doing it, the changes were remarkable. Uh, and I can, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. But 
And then seeing the impact of going into, uh, I think there were maybe seven different kind of states that, that he went into. And just seeing like the changes that were going in there was quite, quite uh, inspiring and quite impactful for me. Um, uh, I remember one moment I was like, I didn't want to disturb him, you know, getting into these very deep states in a brief period of time. So I, I was kind of stepping out and I asked him like, you know, what's the best way for me to like get in and out of, of the room and like to kind of usher you in and out of a meditation without someone just saying like, Hey, it's over. Um, and he just like, just so honestly, he was like, don't worry. Like, there's nothing you could do to disturb me. Like there's nothing you could possibly do to disturb me. And I was like, that was honest. Like that was really, that wasn't like a polite thing. That was, that was honesty. And I was like, Oh wow. Powerful. Um, I'm really glad that you brought him yeah. up. I actually, I, w- I wanted to ask you uh, a little about, you know, your experiences with him. I'll, I'll first say my own kind of personal experience. I, I remember when you first, um, and that that was before I started the company where you did um, you did these kind of electrical recordings on him. But I remember, you know, you you telling me about them, you know, when I had joined on. And I remember, you know, my first initial kind of reaction was honestly like, oh, yeah, like, who's this guy? You know, like, who's this guy to, you know, mm-hmm. say he can do this different stuff? And like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who are, you know, kind of say, oh, you know, we live in a very, I think, like narcissistic sort of society where where everyone's kind of claiming they're the shit, you know, they're they're the yeah, top, they're yeah. the best. Um, but what was super interesting rampant. to me, yeah, rampant. Yeah, what was super interesting to me was was actually when, uh, you know, Genpo uh, when he came. Um, Genjo. 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 Sorry. Yes. Genjo. I won't. Say anything yeah, about yeah, it. But it was a little different. Right. Right. Um, but when Genjo, yes, thanks for the correction. When he came, yeah. uh, you know, and spoke to us that one day, uh, I, I, it was so interesting to me. I mean, just to see. I mean, what, what he was talking about was interesting too. But, but just kind of observing his mannerisms and how, you know, he, he was not at all, you know, he was actually. I, I, I tell people like, like when you were kind of introducing himself, he was, he was almost embarrassed. It seemed like when you were like a little bit like, you know, when you, when you were kind of talking about his accomplishments, he was like that humble. Yeah. Where he was like, no, you know, like, no, I'm just like a regular guy. Like, don't, you know, like, yeah. And I just thought and that's that, honest. Yeah. That's honest. Yeah. I just thought, yeah. It's, it's so, uh, it was so different than I guess maybe what I had expected. And, I don't know, just just a lot of things in his mannerisms kind of caught my attention, um, yeah. just how present he was with with everyone and um, how he really he really took a moment to like consider our questions really like you know he was he was like silent right or you know like for a for a few seconds or or ten mm-hmm. seconds and it wasn't very normal in in, yeah. in this practice yeah <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm just curious as far as you know you've uh, you know I had just that one experience you know learning learning a, a tiny sliver of of his knowledge but you know what uh I, I he's kind of would you say he's kind of served uh, as sort of a mentor to you or, or he served some kind of uh, 
yeah some kind of future yeah and, I, and I, absolutely. Life, right? without a doubt and it's interesting that we bring up kind of what vocabulary or semantics you would use uh and it's developing and changing now that i live here so the other piece that i think we haven't mentioned yet is that uh, i've been traveling for the last few months and i just moved back and i'm actually living as part of kind of the community that uh is kind of more involved and hands-on with uh with the temple uh, and i'm right above so uh in about 15 minutes i'm going to go down and uh, kind of open the place up for an evening sit and, and make some tea for people. But um, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, you know, at this moment, I would say teacher is probably the most, uh, in a way, endearing and respectful and formal and informal. You know, it's like it captures a little bit of the everything. Um, of the relationship and it's complex but it's uh, really wonderful and enriching and inspiring for me mm -hmm. well like what sort of things have have you whether it be stuff that he's directly said to you or, or the group or just things that you've observed and been like oh like you know just seeing the way he kind of moves uh, you know moves through life and the way sure. he does his stuff what kind of what kind of things have been like the biggest sort of like Oh yeah, he really has been, you know, meditating you yeah. know, how long he he has. Yeah. Well, okay, I'll say a couple things then. Uh the first thing as far as things that he said, uh of course, so many moments of like, wow, I'm really going to stop and and think about that. And it's hard to even place one, but also our tradition, uh the Zen tradition does not place a big emphasis on words. Silence is quite important, as with most meditation traditions. Um, but in this one, I think particularly silence is really a big theme. So uh, there are the talks that he gives, and I um, I'll also make a plug for that. Uh, if you do listen to podcasts or you like to listen to talks or podcasts in the car, um, and we'll type this out maybe in the description, but the Choboji, C H O B O. J.I. Temple Podcast uh, has all of his talks, some talks from other teachers, but mostly the talks that he has um, during retreats or other occasions. And I mean, so many of those have just touched a very deep place. Um, and then, you know, I get to have kind of one-on-one -on -one meetings and interviews with him and kind of look into my progress and what I'm thinking about, whatever koans, which are kind of like these meditation questions uh, that I have at the at that moment. Um, but what you said about the action was, I think, very spot on, which is that even more, been very, very humbled, astounded, impressed uh, by what action is taking. Because like words are great, and it's an important thing to have the words. I think it's really important. It touches a different place. But they become a lot cheaper if there's not action to match it. Uh, and I think uh, in this case, his action goes above and beyond. Uh, like, for example, simply the fact that he is there at pretty much every single sit uh, that is held at this temple every single week, morning and evening. And he's definitely the only person that goes to every single one. First of all, second of all, just traditionally, that's unheard of. 
the Roshi or the head teacher, sometimes they would be an Osho, would never sit at all of the sits. But he's sitting at all the sits because he's very adamant about, no, I need this practice too. This is, you know, this is important part of my life too. And this community is important. Um, so there's that. But really something that stuck out to me at this last retreat uh, that I just got back from, just got back from, just walked upstairs from, uh, but a couple of days ago, um, was seeing how dynamic he was with his relationships. Uh, and I was kind of marveling at this with another student of like, it's so incredible to realize that he has a special way of kind of touching each person in the community. And sure, I'm sure there's some people, as with any human being, maybe there's some people that you know, I'm not saying like, oh, everybody needs to come have this this beautiful human being as their teacher. But I am saying in what I've witnessed within the community, it's really beautiful to see all the varied relationships that he has with different people. With me, he has one specific relationship that uh, is a way of reaching me. But with somebody else, it's kind of different, you know, like uh, and it's tot- it's all honest and it's all genuine uh, because he has a full understanding and acceptance of the full range of himself such that he can interact with a very wide range of people Mm -hmm. uh, in quite a remarkable way. Uh, And it's, you know, you, you, it's something I've been practicing here for, uh, let's see, how long now? Almost two years now. Um, And it's not something I caught on to right away, but being around more and more, you start to realize, Oh wow. Like that was that was very like that person's perception or that person's relationship with him is, is like comfortable or salty or something about that at all. But it's very, whoa, like he's really meeting each person where they're at. And that's really, really a beautiful thing to witness. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's something I feel like people who are like the most gifted at, you know, kind of, whether it's managing or just just networking, you know, in general, yeah. it's like it's it's being able to, as you kind of you, you kind of said it better than I could, like kind of, you know, connecting with people the way that they need to be connected with, you know, like yeah. there's different sort of modes that you're going to interact with one person, you know, and there may be one kind of strategy you may want to be kind of like, you know, like as say a coach, you may want to be kind of like tougher on one person because, you know, they can handle it and they kind of like need that sort of like forced to kind of like you know get them to to do what you want um but then someone else like there might be a different sort of you know approach that that could be more effective i i don't know if we ever talked about this i was reading um john wooden's autobiography the the ucla head coach head basketball coach and and that was a lot of the stuff he was talking about was like just kind of over time, what made him so successful with with his teams was just understanding just the varied dynamics of his players, how they were all, you know, I mean, some of them were, you know, rich kids from Beverly Hills and, and some were, you know, from from poverty. And, and it was like wherever they were, you know, and whatever kind of backgrounds they had, it was like, you know, they ended up like realizing like this guy has my back, you know, this guy completely yeah. believes in me, supports me. And I think like not a lot of people, like, unfortunately it's like, I feel like there's not a lot of people we can say that about sometimes where we're yeah. like, but it's, it's, super yeah, I mean, cool when, yeah. 
Well, another mentor of mine would have put it uh, this way um, by saying, like, how do you make everybody feel safe? Uh, and some people don't like that word. Some people are like, oh, safe, you know, like, what is this, like, some soft thing? But at the end of the day, from a nervous system perspective, that's really what it is. It's like, how do you make each person feel really at ease? How do you make them kind of drop a little bit? Um very subtle, but it really is affecting, when you think from a neuroscience perspective, it's affecting the sympathetic-parasympathetic balance. And whatever it is, and different people need different things to get there. And to be perceptive and aware and mindful enough, uh, and aware enough of the things that are coming up within your own self, then you can kind of do that for more people. You can allow more people to be safe. You can't make someone feel safe, but you can allow them, you can invite them to feel safe. And that's a really, really cool, beautiful thing. It's a great gift to the world. Interesting. So you think it kind of like starts with kind of figuring some of your own stuff out, like getting more kind of comfortable with yourself before you can sort of have that space to, to provide that for other people? I would say so. Um, I think the, well, yeah, I've actually, you know, to have another quote of when we were doing the brain recording of of my teacher, Genjo Roshi, um, you know, we went through all these different samadhis and they were very cool. They had like, you know, we were describing them in very cool ways, like, um, you know, like kind of more of a bodhicitta, like a heart, mind, uh, compassion oriented samadhi or kind of more of a mu, like full emptiness uh black before black kind of samadhi and and among others and then the last one he did was the combustion samadhi and he was like the combustion samadhi and i was like oh god like do i have to get under the table like are you gonna blow something up he's like the combustion samadhi actually is when you go deep internal and you really face kind of the most difficult things that you hold with yourself that there are to face, uh, whether that's your kind of shames about the past or your deep, deep anger or hatred or feelings of betrayal or your greatest sorrows or nightmares, fears, whatever. But these kind of difficult things that we all do hold with us uh, at varying levels of awareness. Uh, and we kind of peel those back like an onion. But he was like, you know, this is probably the most important uh, space to go into out of all of them. Because if you don't spend time here, just sitting and breathing and understanding and seeing some of these things that you do have in yourself and you actually carry around everywhere, then it makes it very difficult to be in any other space in a kind of stable way. Uh, and that especially is interpersonal. Um, one thing, what kind of the most interesting thing that I learned from a social neuroscience course that I took was uh, interpersonal interactions are like this like echo chamber of uh, mental health and of mental functioning, right? Like sometimes we can function on our own just well. And you see this over and over with all sorts of people. We can function on our own just well, and we kind of figure out just how we need things to be just so in order to not disturb us. But it's totally a different matter when you add another person to the equation. 
because you start not being able to control things. And then you're getting feedback from the other person and it starts playing on what's already in your mind. So it's very important to kind of face and consider some of these things. And I feel like what's so interesting about that, you know, just to kind of say something real quick before we wrap up, because I know you got to get down and continue, go downstairs and continue your practice. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's interesting. Always going. I mean, yeah, it's interesting to me how a lot of the, the stuff, you know, kind of reading social cues, like we know that, you know, the verbal, you know, what's actually said from one person to another, that's like a very small percentage of, of social interaction. And what you made me first think of is how, you know, say meeting a new person for the first time, oftentimes like, like I'll just, you know, have, you know, meet them and then like start either like feeling like, you know, like really good and like, like, like I'm like feeding off their like positive energy or, or like, I'm like feeling kind of like weird about, like, like, yeah. like, you know, like there's like, as you were saying, like there's definitely people who are like, can kind of bring out your insecurities um, or kind of help you grow, you know? Um, but it is, yeah, as you're saying, kind of all reflecting, I guess, their own kind of personal mental state, what they're, what they're bringing to that interaction. Yes. Well, it's, a, it's a sound chamber. Yes. Sound right, chamber. Well, and what are we adding to the sound chamber? I think maybe that's a good question to leave off with yeah is everyone has their own little sound chamber going and it's a natural part of being a person and what are we throwing into other people's sound chambers and what are we throwing into our own sound chambers uh and if it's not good how do we go about changing that absolutely a a good question indeed and something people can think about uh in the meantime and you know we're gonna do a, a part two of this uh this podcast and you know i we're gonna get into your role in in doing these kind of electrical studies of the brain with with people on death row which is super fascinating and and crazy um but if you uh if you want to follow your i don't know if you want to promote you already put a a couple um you know things uh things out there i mean you could have my instagram on there i'm not super active on social media but uh, my Instagram is second cocoon, like the number two, second uh, cocoon, like uh, what a butterfly emerges from. I'll let you interpret the metaphor if you like. Um, that's that's about it. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, um, the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. It's Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. That is the Instagram. Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio now. Um, and then if you actually want to watch the the uh, video form of the interview, um, you can go to YouTube. Uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit is the YouTube channel. Go ahead, like, and subscribe. You know what to do. So, Sam, thanks so much again for being on the show, and enjoy your sit tonight. Thanks, Toby. Nice to see you, man. Nice to see you, too. We'll talk soon. Cool. Can't wait. <laughs>